Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast, and I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics related to the human condition. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Amy Buecher, who is a psychologist whose work is at the intersection of psychology, design, and technology. Amy is currently the vice president of MadPow, a purpose-driven digital strategy firm. She holds degrees from Harvard and the University of Michigan and specializes in behavior change design. She also has a new book out entitled Engaged, Designing for Behavior Change. I wanted to speak with Amy to shed light on behavior change in the wake of COVID-19, where much of our work now is being enabled by technology. This is a new space and Amy in many ways is pioneering research to better understand how these two worlds meet. The topics we discuss are health, happiness, instant versus delayed gratification, motivation, narrative storytelling, identity, and personal values. Amy's insight and perspective regarding human psychology gives us a greater understanding of why we behave the way we do and how we can ultimately behave in a way to better ourselves, our communities, and our society. Please share this conversation far and wide with those who could use it most. And as always, if you enjoyed this conversation, kindly leave a review. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to bring you Dr. Amy Buecher. Amy Buecher, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm very good. I'm excited to talk to you today. Well, it's great to have you, Amy. And the reason why I'm interested in speaking with you is because you're a behavioral scientist who creates digital experiences to make people healthier and happier. And so in the wake of COVID-19, people are now in front of screens nonstop. For that reason, I kind of want to talk to you about how technology and behavioral science in the context of today come together. And I think it's probably best to start off by asking, how do you describe what you do? That's a good question. And it's actually something I've struggled with quite a bit over my career. I think first, because it's a relatively new field. It's a new job that I, I do. So I don't have a historical pattern to fall back upon. And you know, secondly, because I think I, I'm still discovering what exactly it is that I do. But I like to think of myself as a translator. So I'm a person who seeks to understand how people behave, what they want to do with their lives, what the context that they're living in makes possible for them or makes difficult for them, and then translating what I learned from that into what a product might look like that helps them achieve that that at different end results. So the word I keep finding myself coming back to is translation or translator. Yeah, I think that's great. Now, just so we're on the same page, could you define behavioral change and the importance of it? The first thing with understanding behavior change is really focusing in on what is the behavior. So um, we want to really understand in a very crisp way the behavior or more often behaviors, plural, that we're seeking to change. And in my book, I actually I define it as a behavior is something that you can observe. It's something people do. That is a little bit of an oversimplification. If you think about something like biofeedback, that is also a behavior change where the behavior in question is more subtle and not observable in the same way. But for purposes of your beginning designer, someone who's new to behavior change, that idea of a behavior being something that you can observe works pretty well most of the time. And what we find when we think about the sorts of effects that we want to have in the world, uh, you know, I work often with, for example, healthcare clients who want to see people using the healthcare system in a more planned fashion, you know, not using the emergency room for their primary care, not getting to a point where they have a medical emergency, but rather having an intervention earlier that prevents them from getting to that point. 
when we think about those sorts of outcomes, what drives them is the behaviors of the individual. And so focusing in on those actions and then designing to affect them is what allows us to achieve those sorts of outcomes on more of the systems level. So it's really, it's really important to go through that definitional phase and understand what is it that people are doing that ultimately affects the outcomes in the system. Oh, that's really curious. And so I'm curious to know if there's layers to this. So there's the systematic approach to understanding behavior change, but is there also a way to better understand behavior change through understanding intuition as a matter of physiology? And what I mean to say is we have urges and desires that kind of tell us to crave another donut or to smoke another cigarette, right? These are physiological kinds of impulses. I ask this because it's really difficult to meet our goals. It's a lot easier, I think, to essentially fall upon our systems or fall to our systems. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. And actually, it's a reason why I often use the framing of self-determination theory of motivation in my work, because that theory of motivation essentially breaks out what is the driving force behind a behavior? Why is a person interested in doing this sort of behavior? And it thinks about those motivations in terms of controlled sources of motivation. So those are usually externally imposed. Things like rewards or punishments, what we might typically think of as an extrinsic motivator as well as internalizing that, that feeling like I should do this because it's what's expected of me, it's what's right. And then we have the more autonomous forms of motivation which come from within and are really driven by people's goals, their values, their identities, and what's purely pleasurable to them. And so part of what my work as a behavior change designer is, is to understand, to really unpack that values and goals and identity piece so that I can help people create a narrative framework around their life where they can start to engage in behaviors that are hopefully, you know, good for them. And there's a lot of debate about who gets to say what's good for people, but they are operating more on the sense of I'm doing this because it supports a goal that I have, as opposed to I'm doing this because I really like the taste of a donut. And that's a great example because a lot of work in healthcare, as you, as you know, has to do with changing the way that people engage in these um, physical drives like like hunger. Oh, that's really interesting. Could you explain what your process is like when you're essentially meeting with clients, meeting with patients, meeting with people you're essentially trying to help? How do you better understand what their sense of identity, their values, and the story that they tell themselves actually is? Yeah, so often for me, the way it looks, we we begin all of our projects with our own primary research. So, you know, we'll conduct a literature review, we'll look at how others have approached the problem space, but we also want to talk directly to the people who we are designing for. And if possible, we actually like to include them in the design process through participatory design, so involving them as co-designers of a solution. The tool that I use most often is the one-on-one interview, the in-depth interview, where I take an hour or so to sit down with a person. We we can either do it virtually over WebEx, you know, with the camera or without, or we can do it face-to-face. But really taking that time to have a deep conversation with the person, build some rapport, and probe in on the area that we're designing around. And I find that especially as we talk to a large number of people across a project, we're able to really start to understand some themes around what people are looking for in terms of a design that will actually support them in the behavior that we're trying to influence. With the participatory design piece, what's really exciting about that is it helps us get at what we call people's latent needs. So most people have not sat down 
and done the really focused work of articulating what their values are, what their identity is. I mean, that's a, a very sort of privileged thing to sit down and and spend the time to come up with, you know, an explicit elevator statement of who you are and what your meaning in the world is. But people do have an implicit sense of what's important to them. And so we're able to basically use creative activities to get people to reveal some parts of that, what's important to them and what they're they're looking for without forcing them to put it into words, which may be difficult or inaccurate for most people. And so I found that it's, it's, first of all, it's a really fun research method, because as I mentioned, we use these creative activities. We actually have people craft, we have them do collages, we have them put things into imagery, but it also really lets us see some of those deeper themes where people are expressing something that's essential about themselves that otherwise we wouldn't get at. And ultimately, they have input into our design as well, which I think is a really important way to make sure that people who are different from ourselves as designers see a solution that better reflects their needs. Oh, that's really curious. So let's unpack this idea of latent needs, because I think that's very, very important as it pertains to the human experience, right? So what are the questions that you may ask an individual to better understand what their needs are and what their sense of identity is? Yeah, so we have to start people off slowly with this process. It's, as I said, it's not something most people have practiced doing. So we ease them in by asking them to talk about their environment, their day-to-day life. So there's an activity we use often called circles of me, where we have people draw co-centric circles where the innermost circle is themselves. But then the circles around them represent the people and places and institutions that are most influential in their daily life. And so by having them go through this process of listing out these various stakeholders in their personal ecosystem, if you will, and then asking them questions about, you know, how are they, these people supporting you? How are they influencing your behavior? Where are there gaps where you might not be getting what you need? That eases the way into some of the deeper conversations that we, we can have later on. We have a whole toolbox of activities that we use, but the one that we usually culminate with that I like a lot and that really helps people get at those latent needs is something we call magic object. So at this point, we've laid the groundwork where we've really talked a lot about the context people are living in and what their needs are, what their environment looks like. We've talked a lot about a specific problem space that's pertinent to the design space we're in. And now we ask people to invent a magic object that would solve whatever that problem space is. And it's really, really interesting because, first of all, people are unbelievably creative. Even the people who tell you off the bat that they are not creative typically come up with ideas that, you know, I I would never have thought of. But secondly, you really start to get at some of these latent needs. And so one thing that will always stay with me, one of the first times I use this set of methods, we were asking people about their wellness programs. So, you know, if you have an app, for example, that's going to help you manage your diet and your exercise and your sleep, And we wanted to figure out how do we design a better version of this for this particular audience. And without talking to each other, most of the people in our group came up with some kind of magic object that gave them positive reinforcement. And what we heard by listening to them is that they're really used to being told when they go over their calorie budget or they don't achieve their step count or, you know, they they don't get enough hours of sleep. And they were telling us over the course of the magic object and other activities that there are thousands of small victories over the course of a day that don't get celebrated in a wellness experience. And for them to hear congratulations, for them to get some kind of positive feedback, 
for the moments when they do make those good choices or have those small achievements would go a long way in keeping them invested in the experience long term. And so the design that we ultimately produced for that client had a, a big emphasis on positive feedback. And it's something that they've since launched to their audience and it's doing really well. It's having a you know high acceptance and satisfaction rate. So I think that was a really important thing that we wouldn't have learned just by asking people because I don't know that anybody knew that that was a feature that they wanted. Your comments lead me to ask, how is it possible then as a, as a matter of a positive feedback loop and its opposite, a negative feedback loop, how is it that people can get into being into a place of having positive habits? I mean, in the context of COVID-19, I mean, there's some people that are flourishing, but there are also a lot of people that aren't. They're stuck in these negative feedback loops. So, so how is it we can understand it and break out of them? Yeah, it, it's a really hard challenge. This whole situation has really disrupted the way that people typically interact with the world and feel effective and feel that sense of positive feedback, as you said, like they can go out and their actions are bringing something back to them. And I think a really hard thing about any behavior change is that a person has to be interested in doing it in order for it to be successful, at least in the long term. So there's there's all kinds of things you can do with rewards and punishments that can motivate short-term behavior change, but typically those don't last over time when the reward or the punishment is removed from the situation. So one thing that I have found personally helpful in this situation, I've seen others benefit from it, is having this mindset of experimentation. So we are all in uncharted territory. There is nobody alive today who has, has gone through this sort of situation. And so this is completely new. It's an opportunity to try things that we might not otherwise have tried. And it could be something as small as you know choosing a different television show that is going to affect your mood differently from what you typically watch, or you know cooking a different dinner than you might typically have, taking a different route on your limited walk outside of your home, because most of us aren't able to go very far away from where we live right now. But taking that adventure mindset is one way that we can help break our usual routine. So taking inspiration from the fact that we are in an unusual moment and then therefore doing some unusual things. Um, And I think there's a huge role as well for us broadly, everybody, to support the people in their lives who they see experiencing that kind of thing. People are all different. Some people respond to this kind of challenge with a lot of energy and a lot of inspiration. We see them and, you know, maybe grit our teeth because we aren't them. But a lot of us don't take to change and to, to challenge quite so so easily. It's, it's a really, really difficult thing. And I think as friends to each other, as companions in the world, we can take the opportunity to reach out to somebody and offer them some of that positive encouragement. And that is also a way that we can make ourselves feel better because as human beings, we're always looking for opportunities to make a difference in the world. We want evidence that our actions are making a difference. And so one easy thing that we can all do to make a difference is to reach out to a friend or a family member or a coworker, check in on how they're doing and maybe offer them a little positive reinforcement or a little prompt to, you know, wow, it sounds like you're really having a hard time. Would it help if we got online and had, you know, talked for a couple minutes? Those sorts of things really, they can help and they can help push people out of those negative loops into a better equilibrium. I think this is a great segue to kind of talk about what happiness actually is. So Amy, could you describe and define what happiness is? Now, I asked this question from the premise of how here in the context of American culture, it's something that's very aspirational. People seek happiness. 
people want to achieve happiness. And, and so I think it's really important to kind of understand what it is and what exactly it entails, especially in the context of modern American culture. Yeah, for me, happiness really means being your authentic self in a way that can thrive in the world around you. And I have been struggling with this recently in the wake of COVID-19 and seeing some, I know it's coming from a very human place of struggling and not knowing what information to trust and really valuing autonomy. But, um, you know, in seeing some people behave in a way that puts others at risk, I have struggled a little bit with the idea that happiness is just authenticity because there very well may be some people whose authentic self is uh, disruptive to the social fabric that they live in. And I think for me as a designer, as a professional, that is not something I want to help them achieve. That very well may be the way they experience happiness, but it doesn't feel like a uh, pro-social use of my talents and expertise. So one of the things I've really been thinking about in the last several weeks is how important it is to take into consideration the idea of happiness as not just being your authentic self, but being your authentic self in a way that interacts positively with the world around you. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'm really glad that you shared that. I'm really glad that you defined it. I think it's really important in the context of any conversation to define the things that we're actually talking about, just so everybody's on the same page. What I'm really struck by too is how in the context of modern American culture, when we pursue our happiness, we end up doing things sometimes that is in stark contrast to our well-being. For example, if we give in to our impulses of seeking the things that make us happy, especially for the short term, they actually end up being really harmful to us, whether it's uh, eating a donut or not going for a run or staying in bed longer or doing the things that essentially would be good for us, but it's just easier to stay in bed and not do the thing that we're supposed to do. So in your work, do you end up finding that you have to define things for people so that everybody's on the same page in order to cultivate behavior change? Yes. Yes. And that's on multiple levels. So, I mean, I, I work as a consultant. I work for a company called MadPow. We are a uh, design and strategy consultancy. And so I'm often in a position where we're talking to clients or prospective clients, and there's a definitional education I need to provide around some of the work that I do. But then also within the experiences I design, when I'm thinking about an end user, someone who is seeking to undertake a behavior change, I think the, the re-education that is really important there is helping people to arrive at that self-concept that I mentioned. So helping them understand in some way that they didn't understand before what they value, who they are, and what their really important goals are. So not a goal like, I want to lose five pounds for my beach vacation, but a goal like, it's really important to me to feel like I'm the best parent I can be. And if we can help people to arrive at that sort of self-insight, then when we get into a situation like you mentioned, you know, happiness is pursuing what gives me pleasure in the moment, it's a lot easier for people to basically priority rank the different types of pleasure they might receive from an action. So sure, you know, having this cocktail might make me feel good in the physical sense because it's tasty and I enjoy the buzz of it and, you know, I'm out with my friends and all that other stuff. But I also promised that I would be at this early morning meeting tomorrow and it's very important to me as someone who values my career, where that's really a top order value, it's a, a really big part of who I am, much more so than the pleasure in this moment. It makes it easier for people to do some of that prioritization in their own lives and think about pleasure and happiness differently and hopefully in a more productive way. 
Now, what comes to mind is delayed gratification. I'm curious to know what you think as it pertains to how can people go against the urges to delay immediate gratification, especially in the context of being in a country of abundance where everybody and everything is essentially telling us to collect and to consume and our physiology through a matter of you know microevolution, everything in our bodies is telling us to consume the sugar as much as possible because we don't know if we're going to have more sugar tomorrow. And the same thing can be said about entertainment. We have too much entertainment. We have too much stimulation. We have too much access to fornication. We have too much of the things that can in the end become addictive and hurtful to us. So how do you think about living in a place of abundance, but acting in accordance from a place of scarcity in an effort to better understand delayed gratification? Yeah, I I actually think this is one of the central challenges of behavior change, at least in the areas where I do my work. So healthcare and financial services are the two primary verticals where I, I tend to work on projects. So financial services, the work that I do most often is around retirement savings. So how do we get people to prepare earlier in their lives so that they're financially secure when they are older and they're able to, you know, live the life that they want to without financial insecurity? So for many health behavior changes and for that particular financial behavior change, it's really about how do you make sacrifices now for a future self who you don't know You don't necessarily even have confidence that these changes will be effective, that they'll produce the result you want them to. And we also have this cognitive bias where we tend to think of our future self as like a superhuman version of who we are today. So, you know, I'll be smarter, I'll be better, I will, I can handle that down the road. And of course, we all know just from the experience of being human that the person we are today is like a slightly older version of the person we were (laughs) a little while ago. So um, we don't tend to change that dramatically in these time periods. One thing that I've found can be helpful is building empathy for that future self. So there's been some really interesting work done in both health and financial services, actually, where people have created versions of the person that are older. So um, it's been done using avatars or images that have been realistically aged. And in both cases, um, you know, they found that when they showed people realistically aged photos of themselves in the time that they were making some retirement contribution decisions, they made more aggressive savings decisions. So they basically were willing to put more money aside for that future self because it felt much more real when they could see that photo. And with the health example, there's a company called Medical Avatar that did a really interesting pilot with Kaiser Permanente where they had 3D avatars that they built of the people who were in the study. And they showed versions of what they would look like in the future, depending on different behavior changes the person made. So you could use a little slider and select, you know, okay, I'm going to eat only nachos from now on and, you know, smoke a pack of cigarettes a day versus the opposite and see how that affected the the physical appearance of the avatar. And again, they found that people who were able to do this, experience this, ultimately, I think it was weight loss was their dependent variable in that particular study, but they, they ultimately moved forward with the, the healthier choices as a result of having that empathy for their future self. Oh, that's really curious. So would it be helpful to kind of talk about what empathy is and actually where empathy comes from as a matter of our emotions and how humans essentially think about empathy? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we are built with empathy and there's a couple of different flavors of it. So there's been some debate about is empathy good, is empathy bad? And 
Certainly, I think we're limited in how much empathy we can experience at any time, because if we become emotionally involved in all of the problems in the world, it's it's just too much for a person to take on. There's there's no room for action when you have so much feeling involved. But, you know, I always think of it as having both a cognitive and an emotional component where the cognitive component is really understanding another person's perspective and situation. I do think of the cognitive component of empathy as coming from a place of kindness. So you're giving a generous interpretation to a person of what their situation is and how it influences their behavior. And then the emotional empathy is really feeling the emotions that that person might be feeling. It's taking on some of those same feelings that they may have. And I mean, evolutionary psychologists would tell you that empathy comes from a, a need to protect our genes. So a lot of the empathy research, especially coming out of evolutionary psychology, but it really looks at protecting your kin group above all others. And so I don't know if you knew this, but I actually did some research on empathy in grad school. I have a few publications on empathy. And um, one of the things that we did in our research that proved to be pretty effective is actually having people watch clips from movies where there was a very emotionally charged scene and then write a short reflection about what that character might have been feeling. And uh, I know this dates myself a little bit, but the movie we used quite often was Joy Luck Club. And we chose it specifically because it has Asian characters and we were doing our research with non-Asian people and we wanted to see if we could build empathy across racial lines. And we found that if we had people do this personal reflection, so watch the movie clip and then write a short reflection of what that character was experiencing in the moment and how do you think you would feel in that sort of same situation, then people ultimately were much kinder, much more generous in the way that they rated that character and the things that they said afterwards. So that idea of storytelling is a really important tool, I think, in building empathy. And it's one of the reasons, too, why we do so much primary research when we are doing a design project because we want to have the empathy ourselves for our users, for the the people we're designing for. And the easiest way to build that is to sit down with them and hear their stories and see their faces. I really like that. So I once did an experiment. You may actually implement this experiment in your work where I was part of a group and the team leaders of this group had everybody in the group sit directly across from another person quite literally maybe six, seven inches apart. And we weren't supposed to do anything except stare at each other. And what's really interesting about that experience is it's deeply uncomfortable. It's deeply uncomfortable to stare at somebody you don't know in their eyes and in their face for more than five, even 10 seconds. But we had to do it for a minute our first time around. And it really evoked a lot of a lot of emotion to the point where some people even broke down and cried. And then we essentially escalated it to four minutes and then 10 minutes. And obviously this exercise becomes easier. But what's interesting about this and what it really showed me is that people aren't used to staring at other people. They aren't used to being vulnerable to somebody else to that long of an extent where somebody can actually see all the pores in their face. They can see the emotions resting in their face. They can see how their eyes essentially are carrying and or seeing the world physically. And so I'm wondering if we can kind of talk about that for a second. Like, why is that so difficult in the research that you've done? And, you know, what does it say about who we are as human beings? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it comes back a little bit to the fact that we are built to be self-protective. I mean, you you even mentioned some of the primal urges we have around food and and reacting to scarcity. And I think similarly, emotionally, we have our primary instinct is to protect ourselves rather than to make ourselves vulnerable to other people. It's really interesting if you've heard of the fundamental attribution error. So behavioral economics, the the whole basis of it basically is we have two competing systems in our brains. You know, one is the sort of emotional reflexive system that um, it's our gut instinct and it's fast and it dictates the way we respond to a situation. And then our cognitive system kicks in just slightly later and tries to backfill. It tries to pull together the logical reasons why that emotional reaction is correct But the cognitive system has a whole series of predictable errors, and those errors spring out of some of those those kinds of primal urges. One of them is called the fundamental attribution error, and it is this idea that if I do something, I'm doing it because of the situation. You know, I looked at the evidence, and I made a decision that this was the right thing to do, and it's, it's the best I can do given everything that's going on. But other people's actions, those are due to something about that person. So if they do something that I find unpleasant, it's because they're selfish or they're a jerk. When you sit down and you are face-to-face with somebody that close, even without the exchange of words, it becomes so much more difficult to maintain those errors that ultimately do serve some self-protective properties. So, you know, it's it's a lot easier for me to, to move through the world and not feel um, vulnerable myself if I can tell myself that when you're upset with me or you're short with me, it's because of something about you and not because I may have done something wrong. It's a really hard set of tendencies to overcome. That's fascinating. Not only is it really hard for, for one to overcome them because we've been evolutionarily designed to become this way through the years, but also too, just to be aware of it. Quite literally, the awareness of that thinking of ourselves is the first step. And so as you're talking about this, Amy, the first thing that comes to my mind, which I learned, you know, because I'm, I'm really curious about the human condition, what it means to be human. And the one thing that I learned that really speaks to what you're talking about that was transformational in my thinking about other people is human beings are not rational creatures, they're rationalizing creatures. And I think that speaks to your fundamental attribution error, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think that's absolutely true. And I also think, as you say that, that that is exactly the characteristic that I try to exploit in my work oftentimes with the exercise of having people think about what's important to them. Because just having them do that sometimes is enough to have people start to do that rationalization and think on their own like, oh, you know, I say that it's really important to me to be a particular type of person, but some of these behaviors I'm engaging in don't support that. So I should reconsider. Mm-hmm. Now, that's great because that leads me to, to question, you know, how is it that you can, in your work, how is it that you map or you're able to kind of help people map their fundamental values and their notions of identity and their narrative of themselves, the story in which they tell themselves, and then the desired action, right? Like, how do you map? How does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, first you have to get people to arrive at that sense of who they are. And there's all kinds of tools out there you can do. Um, There's a survey that I really like called the Values in Action Character Strength Survey. It's online. It's free to take. And one of the creators of it was a mentor of mine when I was in grad school. So I have a sort of personal connection to it. But he was a co-primary investigator of a three-year longitudinal study where they um, surveyed thousands of people came up with 24 core character values that people might have. 
the survey helps you identify the top three that are yours. And I found that it, it's really resonant for me when I take it. You know, sense of adventure, sense of learning is a top one for me. And that just felt like such a lightning bolt when I saw it because I think about my career and my personal life and, and that really defines the things that I value most. And it's it's been really helpful to me even now navigating the you know COVID aftermath, thinking about that sense of adventure. So that's one tool that I would recommend people try. There's also all kinds of different storytelling and creative exercises you can lead people through. Vic Strecker is the co-founder of a company I worked for, Health Media, that was acquired by Johnson & Johnson. And now he is the CEO of a new company called Kumanu. And his whole thing is helping people do this, tell their own story. And so he's got this whole series of really creative exercises, like writing yourself a birthday card on your 100th birthday. And, you know, what are you going to put in that card? What is your story going to look like when you're 100 years old? That gives you some real insights into what's important to you because you're not going to include something there that's frivolous. It's sort of a, a less morbid variation on the, you know, nobody on their deathbed says they wish they worked more hours. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's things about what would your superpowers be if you were a superhero? That also gives you some insight into what you value and what you most want to do in the world if reality weren't a constraint. So the first step is to lead people through that, to give them a set of tools that might work for them so that they can grasp onto at least some, some nugget of who they are and why, what's important to them. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to ask two questions back to back, like what was the catalyst for you wanting to be in this work? And then as you work in this space of better understanding human behavior, how has that transformed you in your own behaviors? The catalyst, I kind of stumbled into psychology, but I think that it made sense given what I was interested in. So um, I, I love to read to this day. It's my primary hobby. I love to read fiction particularly. And I think it comes from a real interest in other people and other lives. Like I, I enjoy experiencing empathy and I enjoy learning about worlds that I can't be a part of. I am who I am. I'll never be anybody else. So anyone else's experience to me is always really interesting just because it's different from my own. And so I wanted to study English in college, but I really quickly learned that when you make your passion the subject, it just, I, it was taking the pleasure out of reading for me. And I found myself in tears talking to my college roommate, the um, form to declare my major was due the next day. And the only thing I knew was I could not put English, but of course that's the only type of class I had taken. And she suggested I try psychology. So it was a real leap of faith to put that on the form and then, you know, take my first psychology classes as a psychology major. And I learned very quickly that it was just a different way to explore other people's worlds. It was a different toolkit, a science-based toolkit to have that same experience of building empathy, understanding other people's contexts. And what I really loved about it, what made me want to pursue a career in it is there's also the design component of it. I can take what I'm learning. I can take this empathy and I can do the translation to create tools, to create services, to create experiences that will help people become a better version of themselves or to reach a goal that they really value. So that to me, um, I, I just remember some of my college and graduate school years as being doors opening, seeing the promise that these tools and these techniques had for actually doing something in the world. And a lot of my career experiences that have been most enjoyable have been because they have shown me some of these opportunities that exist for someone with my skill set and my training to actually help people. 
That's great. I love that. I love the fact that the catalyst for this type of work that you know you're doing now really started by wanting to explore different perspectives of other people's experiences. So does that mean you do a lot of storytelling in the context of your own work? Yeah, I do actually. So I was originally trained more as a uh, quantitative researcher, but in grad school, I started to transition to a qualitative toolkit. And so primarily now I do use storytelling, whether it's having people tell me stories through the interviews or, um, you know, when they do something like participatory design, they are essentially telling a story about their lives and their dreams. So um, qualitative research is certainly what I lean on most heavily now. And I think that it provides the most value for the type of work that I do. So I'd like to take this opportunity, Amy, and have you uh, tell us about your new book. It just came out in March, right? Yes. um, Fabulous timing. (laughs) It's um, called Engage Designing for Behavior Change, and it's with Rosenfeld Media, which specializes in books for user experience professionals. So designers, researchers, product managers, you know, anybody who might work on, on developing a product for user consumption. And I wanted to write for that audience specifically because, as I said, the thing that I really think of myself as is a translator between the psychological science and the things that I learn from people into ideas for products, solutions, and experiences. And one of the things that I've observed in my career over the years is that there aren't a lot of people who have a foot in both worlds the way that I do. So I have quite a few people who reach out to me, you know, maybe I'll give a talk at a a local event or I blog sometimes, or, you know, so I've had a few people who will see a blog post of mine and they'll reach out and they basically have variations of the same question. Like, how do I do the sort of thing you do? How do I bring behavior change and the science of psychology into the design world? So I felt like there was a real appetite for kind of a how-to on doing that. And I couldn't find one to recommend to people. That was actually a, a lot of it as I was looking for resources to recommend to people. And I kept finding myself at a loss for one that I felt really covered, you know, why would we want to do this? How do we want to frame up behavior change design? And then what are some of the most useful tools that we can use within it? So, um, you know, I had the opportunity to do this book with Rosenfeld and it just came out. You know, what they say is, is uh, you have to write the book uh, that hasn't been written yet that you want to read. Yeah, yeah, it... Um I'm glad that it's out there. I do feel like it, it does something a little bit different from the other books that are available. And I mean, there are a lot of great resources about using behavior change in a product organization, using psychology and design, but there was really nothing I could find that brought motivation in particular. And these these ideas of identity and values and goals, nothing at least written for this practitioner audience. There's certainly, uh, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants very, very much so. Um, There's a lot of great academic work that talks about this, but that's not accessible to the design community. And I don't think that people should have to parse through the literature of a field that is new to them in order to bring some of these tools into their work right now. Oh, that's great. I appreciate you sharing that, Amy. To wrap this conversation up, I'd like to ask you one final question, and it's this. What's your message for the world? I would say my message to the world is to seek out ways to be the person you are. And that means taking some time to think about what you value most, the type of person that you want others to remember you as. And then as you move through the world day to day, look at the different opportunities available to you and think, which ones of these support that story? You know, what what do I want to include in the story of the person I am? That's perfect. Thank you, Amy. Appreciate you and uh, appreciate the work that you do. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Baktash. This was nice. 
Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say... Thank you. Okay, see you next time.